Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Well, good morning. All right, a little, little boomy. Does it sound trash canny to you? Just to me. Just to me. Okay, all right. How you guys doing this morning? You doing good? I, uh, I woke up this morning feeling the, uh, the cold that has my, my wife uh, down for the count today, but there was something happening in my heart before the alarm clock went off. You know it's of God, right, when you wake up before the alarm goes off. There was just something happening in my heart early this morning, making me eager to come and be with you today, eager to worship the Lord, eager to dig into his word and to share with you the things that I have uh, studied and that the Lord has shared with me this week. Um, we're, we're here uh, in, in the last couple of weeks of the Lenten season, and if you've been with us through, through the whole Lenten season, that is from that, that Sunday following Ash Wednesday, uh, heading on into Easter, you may recall that on that first Sunday, I talked about how Lent, whatever, whatever else it has meant to the, the church worldwide over the, the last several centuries, um, it really boils down to this. It's a time in which we are going to purposefully get ready for a big celebration on Easter Sunday. What we're going to celebrate on Easter Sunday is the one fact that makes all all things possibly different for everybody. It's, It's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration when we Christians say that we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes everything, and therefore is the most important moment in all of world history. Listen, there are people who celebrate Arbor Day, okay? It's just trees, okay? It's just trees. There are people who celebrate National Macaroni Day, and um, I mean, yay for macaroni, but really? Really? Um, Every day is National Something Day. Don't confuse Easter, Resurrection Day, for just another half-hearted celebration where you get to eat an extra box of macaroni or an extra scoop of ice cream. We Christians are getting ready for a celebration that is one of those full-throttled, everything-you've-got Um, heart, mouth, life open toward God and toward the community around us because of what we have received in our connection with the resurrected Jesus Christ. Easter's going to be a really good day. But any celebration, I mean, even the celebration of National Macaroni Lovers Day requires some preparation because if National Macaroni Lovers Day rolls around and there is no Kraft mac and cheese in the cupboard at your house, some teenager, Luke, (coughs) is going to whine about that, okay? So it's absolutely necessary to prepare for any kind of celebration that you really want to do well. And so Lent is that... That period of six-ish weeks that for centuries now the church has said is, is kind of an, an adequate uh, preparation time for this great big celebration. But the way that we prepare for the celebration is not simply to get streamers and um, new clothes for Easter and Easter eggs and candy. That's the, the preparation time in Lent, we figure you can knock all of that out on, on like Saturday afternoon before Easter. That the six weeks of preparation is all about us stopping the busyness and, and, and the repeated busyness of our lives and saying, wait just a minute. Instead of just scanning the horizon for the next thing that's on my schedule, why don't I take a look at my heart? Let's go inward very intentionally for the next few weeks and see if there's anything in my life that doesn't seem to fit with the joyous news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a time when, when we look inward and say, is there something that really ought to change in my life? We probably, most of us, blew right past New Year's and New Year's resolutions because we've given up on those, having tried a few and failed. Easter, uh, Lent, the preparation for Easter is that time when we say, this isn't about some um, good idea that I had quickly on New Year's Eve and said, I should lose 35 pounds. Instead, it's taking a look at my heart and saying, there's real change possible So let's go get some of that for the things in my life that need to be changed. 
And then come Easter, we will celebrate the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that makes it then possible for real change to happen. So if you're just tuning in now and you're getting kind of a late start on the whole um, Lenten preparation for Easter, let me encourage you, um, preparing for two weeks is better than preparing for none, okay? Over the course of the next two weeks and starting today, let's, let's just take a look inward and say, Lord, why don't you search my heart? Anything in there that you want to talk about, I'd be glad to listen, and you and I and maybe some brothers and sisters can tackle some of that together. Last week when Steve and I were up here talking, Steve, Steve was doing, uh, you didn't put it in these terms, but it was, it was a Lenten thing you were doing when you were driving down the road in your pickup and listening to God, and he pointed something out in Steve's life that needed, needed to change. Steve said, yes, Lord. I thought that was great, Steve, that the Lord speaks to you and tells you how you ought to change and leaves me safe over here until this week. He, uh, uh, on Thursday, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, there's a couple of things, if I'm being honest, Cliff, there's a couple of things that you should probably look at. And so, I don't know, halfway-ish through the Lenten preparation for the resurrection, he talked to me about two areas in my life where I'm about to experience the power of the resurrected Christ. And so as you think about change, don't think about it as this great big hard uh, chore list in front of you. Think of it as the ways in which you are about to experience the power of the resurrected Christ in your life. You want some of that, right? Good. Let's take a look inward. I'm, I'm going to take a look inward today with you. Um, you might open your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 8, we're 7 and 8. We're going to get there in a little bit. Um, when years ago, uh, right before I headed to seminary, I worked for a very wealthy lady. I've told you a number of stories about working for, for Mrs. Pete over the years. She and her husband owned uh, the Colgate Palmolive Company. They had, they had mansions in all corners of the earth and incredible resources. And in this, this mansion that she lived in, her, her primary residence in what really is the Beverly Hills of the Midwest... Uh, she had this Depression-era mansion, gorgeous place, you know, um, eight acres of lawn, a, a bowling green, statuary gardens, and, you know, a carriage house, these kinds of things, beautiful gates at the front entrance. But the whole place was heated by this massive boiler. The boiler had a bigger, bigger footprint than that piano, okay? The, just picture this great big huge pot that was uh, almost a full story tall and had pipes coming out of it from every direction and some coming in. And it had all of these valves on it and all of these big dials. I didn't know how to operate it at all. So um, her butler said, yeah, let me handle that. He didn't handle much in the mechanical department. He said, let me handle the boiler. One day we're sitting in the kitchen. All of a sudden, it's just too hot to, to, to be okay in the house. And he's, oh, it's the boiler again. So we run downstairs and uh, go to the boiler. And as, as he opens the, the door to that room, the heat coming out of there was pretty intense. And we walked in, and I'm, I'm worried this thing's going to blow, right? We walked in, and Charles just very uh, deliberately and calmly uh, looked at this meter, and, and the needle was, was right up there approaching red. And he just went, and cranked it down. And then he went to this one over here, and, and the, the meter was, was real close to red, and he went, he said, that'll, that'll take care of it. It seemed rather anticlimactic uh, when I was expecting, you know, him to run into the room with, you know, flames. And I was seeing Hollywood, and he was seeing the meters and what he needed to do in response to the meters. See, the meters were telling us that there was something out of place in that whole boiler system. And if you pay attention to the meters and you know what to do in response to them, you can avert this great big crisis that looks like Hollywood, the blowing up and the flames and the burn victims and the, and the house uh, being blown to pieces. You have a meter in your life. God has a, a meter, several actually, that, that he's built into us human beings. But there's, there's a meter in your life that I want to talk about today. And if you pay attention to it, and most of the time you do, you'll be able to tell whether it's approaching red or whether it's back over here in, in the safe zone. 
And that meter is your peace. Peace is something that the the people of God, not just the people of God, everybody in this world kind of hopes for, looks for, chases after. We write books about it. We put governmental agencies together to negotiate with with foreign governments in in the hopes of bringing about peace. We, We give ourselves to certain... Um, religions, and we give ourselves to certain exercises and physical practices, all in the hope of trying to get peace, whatever that is, in here, and we hope to be able to hang on to it and never let it go. Peace is a meter in your life. And, And when you have peace in your life, what that meter is indicating is that all is well, or well enough. And when that thing starts to approach the red line, that red line over there is anxiety and all the things that you do in response to your anxiety to try to make you feel better. In the passage that we're going to read today, uh, it's, it's a passage, as I mentioned earlier, that, that calls us to look inward, to take a look at that, that peace meter, see where it is, And then it prescribes for us a course of action to help us get to the place where all is well or well enough again, that your heart and your mind can be at peace. Now, how many, look, we're just just a family here, okay? And Facebook folks, the camera's pointing this way, it's not pointing at any of you, so they're not going to know, okay? But among the, the church family today, how many would say, you know, it's closer to the red zone than the all is well zone. I, I, I need some peace. Anybody going to, yeah, okay. Yeah, I had, I had some, um, I, had, I had that thing revving earlier in the week, right? When the Lord spoke to me, ah, help bring this thing back down a little bit because, because of my response. Well, my guess is that there's probably more than three of us here that have experienced some anxiety over the course of the last week. Um, Let's read this passage, and in it, let's look for a proven path to peace. Now, um, Luke, I I sent you a couple of extra slides. I hope you got those. We're going to back up into Romans chapter 7. You got those? Okay. So um, take take a look at the screen here. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I find this law at work. Now, you don't have to raise your hands if this is true, but some of you are about to read your life story. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me also, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed 
the Spirit of God lives in you. This is, oh, sorry. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. So, peace, anxiety, opposite ends of this this spectrum, and our lives tend to vary back and forth between all is well or well enough and this place where it feels like life might be coming apart, like we're approaching catastrophe, whether it's because of work uh, situations that arise or because of tensions with my spouse or worries about my kids or financial matters. There's these things that, that tend to pull us away from the peace for which God intended us and toward this place of anxiety and worry and fear. You've felt that in your lives a lot of times, haven't you? That Just that yo-yo, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Well, as I read the passage this week, you know, it, it, all in, in the, the frame of mind of search my heart, God, uh, prepare me for that great big celebration of, of the fabulous Easter resurrection event and, and show me anything in my life that doesn't seem to fit with the resurrected Christ. He talked to me about my lack of peace and showed me the path to it. And it's right here in this passage, and we'll share it with you. But first, um, we just have to deal with this one fact. Um, We don't like it, but it is true that much of the time, much of the time, when you and I are not experiencing peace, but instead are experiencing anxiety and worry and fear, much of the time, it's because of disobedience in our lives. And this is not Cliff sitting up here saying every moment that you have, you know, a little bit of worry, you're sinning. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying that as you go about your day, you go about your life, when you find these extended periods in your life where worry, anxiety, and fear dominate, it, it may seem like there's this situation over here that you're worried about. But what is causing you to leave the place of peace and all is well and head toward that many times is disobedience in your life. The quick path to peace boils down to this. Find out what that thing is, repent, and follow God's will, and you're going to find that your life comes back to that place of equilibrium or peace. However, in in the practical uh, world in which we live, just saying, you know, get obedient to God, find, find the disobedience, get obedient to God, and, and we'll live happily ever after. That's not the way that life works. But you and I were created to live in a healthy and holy relationship with God. And when we do that, when we live in a healthy and holy relationship to God, this strange thing happens in our lives where regardless of the circumstances, there's this undergirding sense of peace that somehow enables me to get through the challenges and the things that aren't um, happening exactly the way that I want them to. As we read the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, and as we read the stories of of church history and and the, the people who have walked with God during times of great trial and distress in their lives, as we read through a couple thousand years of that, there always seems to be these people who belong to God, who get it, and whose meters stay stay stuck over here on on the peace side of the equation. Have you ever wondered what it is that, that keeps the peaceful people peaceful? Have you ever wondered why it is that there's some people who just never seem to be able to be rattled? I'd, uh, it, it'd be great, I think, at one level, if it was just personality, we could say, well, so-and-so is peaceful, and so-and-so is a worrywart. And, um, but then it, that's not that great, because it means that the worrywart never has a chance at peace. If you want to just blame your worry on personality, you can continue to do that. You will also get to continue to experience worry um, season in and season out, day in and day out, all the days of your life. The good news is that worry versus peace, anxiety versus peace, is not simply a matter of disposition among the people of God. There is a path 
to peace. And that's what I want to want to show you this morning as we work our way through the scriptures. Um, you noticed that we backed up into uh, chapter 7, and chapter 7 is that famous chapter in Romans where, for the first time, people start to really be able to identify with the Apostle Paul. Paul's the guy who wrote the, wrote the book of Romans, and it's this high, lofty theological language, and we read in the book of Acts, the book right before that, about how he had this incredible lightning bolt experience that blew him off his horse and, and blinded him, and, and God spoke to him and said, hey, you, I want your attention. I want your affection, I want your life and your energies pointed uh, toward me and in, in loving response instead of in attack. And Paul's laying there in the road, unable to see, who are you? And he said, I'm, I'm Jesus, who you've been persecuting. And from that time forward, Paul's life just kind of did this 180, and he went from being this, this soldier as such, attacking Jesus and the Jesus people, to valiant leader among the Jesus people. And as, as we read the story of his life in the book of Acts, he goes from one valiant, heroic effort to the next, and it didn't seem to matter what they did to him, what kind of opposition came along. He was the guy who just said, yeah, I'm good with it, let's go. And, and when we're talking about hardship, we're not talking about somebody who snickered at him because they found out that that guy's religious. <laughs> Chumps who are religious, <laughs> No, it was, the, it was the kind of opposition where they said we should beat him publicly. They did that a number of times, and, um, and in uh, their worldview, 40, 40 lashes publicly would just be completely inhumane, so they would give 39, right? A couple of times he got the, the 39 lashes. Um, he was stoned and left for dead. Stoned meant something very different in the world in those days, Okay. Um, stoned with very large stones hurled at his head and the rest of his body. And most of the time, by the time someone was done being stoned, they were already buried. They were, they were under this, this pile of rubble. He was uh, jailed repeatedly. Um, you know, the, the, the good old days weren't all that good. When they put people in jail, they put them in, in stocks. I mean, if you just could imagine being bent over like this with your, with your feet and your arms stretched out to the same length and your head too, locked into heavy wooden chafing devices, that's a, that's a rough night, right? And somehow, through, through the arguments and, the, uh, and, and the, the verbal attacks and then all of these kind of beating and, and life-ending kind of things, we've got this guy, Paul, who says, yep, I've been through all that, and I have learned the secret of being content. In other words, you can just kind of see him finishing that verse, laying down his pen and going, But chapter 7 of Romans is where everybody goes. Now, that's the Paul that I'm talking about. Because in contrast to this guy who seems to have all of his spiritual act together to be the super Christian, we read about a guy who says, "Um, you know the things that I ought to do, those things that my spirit wants to do, I just can't find it in me to do them. Somehow, even when I know what's right, I'll sneak over here and I'll do what's wrong. And I hate that about me. And the things that are wrong that I know I ought to avoid, I love doing them. And, and I hate that about myself. Paul goes on and on and on in chapter 7, and we're all saying without anybody looking, amen, oh, I hope nobody, I hope nobody thinks that I'm like Paul, but the truth is we all are. There is a struggle internal to the human being a struggle between what we know is right and good and that leads toward health and life and this strange, twisted kind of desire for things that we know are not healthy, are not holy, and lead to death. And most of us thought at some point in our lives when we were first introduced to Christianity that there was a fix to this. And maybe it was because it was preached this way at times, that if you realized that brokenness in you, that you could, you could confess that to God, you could ask him to forgive you, and not only would he forgive you, but he would zap you, and now you won't be struggling. Well, along came the Church of the Nazarene 100-plus-ish years ago, and we said, no, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't always work like that. It doesn't 
work like that. But there's this, for most of us, this moment after we have said that initial yes to Jesus where something in our hearts realizes there's a problem not just with my actions and not just with my words, but they seem to be coming from my heart. And there's this issue of a, of a divided heart within me. And so the Church of the Nazarene and some other groups said, yeah, and that's why it probably takes a, at that second realization, it probably takes a second work of God in your life, kind of almost on, on par with that initial moment that you had that we call being born again or being saved or asking Jesus into your heart. We have a number of terms for it that, that all kind of mean the same thing. But kind of on a par with that big event in your life comes a second event in your life where you realize God has got to deal not just with my outward actions. He's got to deal with something in my heart, and so do I. Something has to be fixed in here. Well, that was preached pretty consistently when I was a kid. And so I said, well, I want the second thing and the first thing. I want both of those things because I had been sensitive, like, like a lot of children are. I, I would feel guilty for wrong things that I had done. Uh, I was still desperately trying to hide them from my mom, but I felt guilty for them. And then I would get to church on Sunday and they would talk about this new life in Christ and, and how by the power of his Holy Spirit, I could live differently than I had been. And I felt like, well, I want some of that, but I chased it last week and the week before and the week before. Maybe, maybe I'm one of those guys who just can't be fixed. Hmm. Here's, here's, what I, uh, here's what I arrived at. The business of week after week after week of seeking God The scripture calls that being pure in heart. And I resist that that idea because I felt like my heart wasn't pure because I was still attracted to some things that were sinfully wrong and unhealthy and destructive to me and other people. I thought, how can it be that that I can have this heart that seeks God and seeks God and seeks God, but then so easily is drawn away? And I lived year after year after year of my life wishing that I had peace, but not experiencing it. Now, let me ask you a question. Devoid of the tough job or a relationship problem, who in here this morning can say, I have struggled with that kind of peace? Hmm? Yeah, me too. Me too. And how many, you don't don't have to raise your hands, how many look at this story of this guy in Scripture, Paul and a number of others, you look at at a handful of people in your life who seem to keep the the peace meter over here and you think, it's high time that I got some of that. I think if, uh, if people would be completely honest, if it were safe to do so, and we asked how many people have given up on ever knowing that kind of peace, we might get a few of those hands as well. The good news is that the same guy who wrote, I, I, I keep running back and forth between the things I ought to do and the things I, I shouldn't do and the things that I love to do and the things that I hate to do and I get all of that tangled up and the, the same guy who ended that by saying, I'm a wretched man, I am bound to death itself. Is there anybody who can cut me free from that? That same guy traced for us a path to peace. And I want to show you that path to peace now. It's, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to call it three steps, and then I'll probably break, break those down a little bit. But um, the first one is this. If you've already had that first moment, that moment where you've realized, I'm, I'm not connected with God in a healthy, holy relationship, and you have sought that, You've, uh, you've heard the, the message that the church of Jesus Christ has proclaimed now for 2,000 years that, that because of what Jesus Christ suffered on the cross and because of his resurrection from the dead and because he sends his Holy Spirit to people, it's possible for you to have a new life. If at any point in your life you, you accepted that by faith and confessed it as, as your belief, the scriptures testify that you have eternal life. 
Not that you had it, not that it's coming at some point in the future, but that you have, present tense, eternal life. There are numbers of verses scattered throughout the New Testament that help us to understand that at that moment, we are translated from, from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to light. And so I want to tell you this morning that the first step on the path to peace, if you are feeling the inward struggle that comes from wanting to do what is wrong and wanting to do what's right and not always getting those two straight, the first step on the path of peace is to remind yourself of the truth that you have been saved from sin and death. Listen, you you don't have to worry one more minute, one more day about whether you will be saved when Christ returns or when you die. You don't have anything to worry about. If at any point in your life you came to that place where you understood your need for God and you reached his direction in faith, listen, God is good enough to save people who struggle. I'm going to say it again because that's really good news. God is good enough at this to save people who continue to struggle. Tell your friends that, please. God is good enough at relationship and at holiness to save people who continue to struggle, even sinning kinds of struggles. I need amens and thank you, Jesuses, for that, because that is really, really good news. First step on the path of peace is to remind yourself of that good, glad, merry, life-changing, freeing news that if you came to that point in faith and you reached toward God, God was already reaching to you, and um, he's not going to turn his back on you and leave you. Okay? First step on the, on the path to peace is to quit worrying about your salvation. Listen, the, the, if you're worried that the struggle in your life against sin and temptation is going to unsave you, you need to understand this. It wasn't you getting, getting it right in life that saved you in the first place. Okay? It was the goodness of God, the goodness of Jesus, not your own good deeds that saved you. And so, now listen to me very carefully. Don't take this statement in and of itself and take it out of context and run with it. But understand this. If it wasn't your righteousness that saved you, then your sin afterwards cannot damn you. Your sin is not going to unsave you when you are struggling mightily to be a man of God, a woman of God, and still on occasion falling flat on your face. Then you need to understand something that that sin cannot unsave you. I hope somebody hears that message today. Listen, when you get into uh, one of Jesus' best friends, John, when you get into his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, at the way at the back of the Bible, um, you'll read this thing that messes up a lot of Christians because, because Christians, you've said it a bunch of times, you know, every sin's the same. No, they're not. Okay? No, they're not. John says in, in his letters late in the New Testament, there is a sin that leads to death and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Okay? He's telling us there's at least two different categories here. And I'm telling you this morning that the first step on your path to peace in your struggle against sin is to understand that the day you surrendered your life to Christ and you began that struggle against you, the trips and the falls are not going to damn you. They're not. Now, I'm also going to tell you, and here's where a bunch of, um, of our Christian friends from other traditions will turn around and say, no thanks, Cliff, and they end the Facebook live stream then. I'm also going to tell you this, that the God who takes very seriously your confession of faith in him and your struggle against sin to, to, to become his obedient children, he'll also take it very seriously if you just one day say, you know what, I'm done. And you turn your back on God and walk away from him deliberately. He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into his heaven one day. He's not going to hold you by the collar and make you be his, his favorite child living in communion with him in this life day to day. He respects the decisions that we make about relationship with him. And if you make a decision to follow him and trip and fall a lot, he honors that. And the day that you say, forget you, God, I'm done with you, he'll let you go. He'll let you go. 
But this morning, okay, listen, I don't have a remedy to the anxiety and the fear and the worry that comes from turning your back on God intentionally and walking away from him. I don't want to fix that. I hope it makes you so miserable that you come crawling back to God, okay? So even if I had a remedy, I wouldn't give that to you this morning. But I just know that a lot of people like me um, who are struggling mightily to follow God but not struggling all that successfully sometimes have worried about whether that means that I'm not really a child of God or that one day I will not be saved or this time I screwed up for the 10,000 and third time and God only allows 10,002 and now... It's over for me, and I'm here to tell you today that those who continue to seek God, find him. Those who continue to ask will receive. And every time you knock on that door seeking him, he throws it open and says, get in here. I've been waiting for you, knucklehead. Get in here. That's the good news of the gospel. And remind yourself frequently, remind yourself every time you struggle with the loser version of you, the loser doctrine that you keep circulating in your head, just remind yourself, tell yourself the truth that you have been saved and therefore you are safe because salvation was never by your performance in the first place. Second step on the path to peace that we find in this passage is, uh, is hard work. Listen, is peace with God worth working for to you? Listen, salvation, free gift. But the peace that that really is that abiding kind of thing that undergirds all of your life so that when you face life's difficulties, you can still say, well, it's tough and it's a challenge, but I've got peace. Is that peace worth working for? I hope it is. Because if if you're not willing to work for it, you get zero Okay? Or maybe an occasional episode. But if you want that abiding kind of peace that, that is that underlayment, that foundation under everything that you do that cannot be shaken, the truth is you're going to have to work toward it. Okay? Here's the work. The work is that you are going to have to cut off sin and sinful thoughts. Cut off sin and sinful thoughts. You cut off the sinful thoughts before they go so far as to becoming sin. Listen, in your life and mine, there there are occasions when we are drawn towards something that is unhealthy and unholy, right? Shake your heads like this. Yep, some of you already today, right? Well, and if you, if you haven't been tempted today, the good news is there's about 12 and a half hours left. I mean, you're going to, you're going to find some temptation along the way. This mind of ours is, is an amazing thing because um, we, we think of, of this organ, the brain, and as, as our mind being all the thinking that happens within that apparatus. But the, the Bible had this different view of human beings, that what you and I think of as kind of our mind or our heart or our soul, that, that kind of sloppy, soupy, otherworldly kind of stuff um, that, that makes us human and that tortures our, our human existence. The, the writers of the scriptures saw human beings as kind of being made of, of three parts. Some people argue, too, I think that the writers saw, um, saw us as having three parts. The first was our body or our flesh. And it's, it's the literal stuff here, but it's also the fact that this has been infected with sin and rebellion against God. And so it sometimes desires good things, but it sometimes desires bad things. Everybody who knows what it is to have desired something that you know full well was evil or full well was destructive, nod your head like this. Okay, all right, so you already recognize the truth of what I'm talking about. The, the flesh, and that's what the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, would, would, would call um, the, the sum total of your body and the kind of broken desires that would lead us away from God. But the New Testament writers also had this idea that you had a spirit within you. It's you, it's, it's the essential you, and that even if your flesh, your body were to die, that that spirit would go on living because it's eternal, like God, and that that spirit can interface with God, and that your spirit, which was once dead and not functioning very well in your life, the day that you had that wake-up call and you first entered into relationship with, with God by faith, that your spirit came alive within you, and now it's got this ongoing dialogue with God, and your spirit will desire what is good, healthy, and holy. 
So on one side, we've got this flesh that interfaces with the world around us, can see, taste, smell, touch, desire. We have this, this uh, spirit on the other side that, that is connecting with God and also can sense, but it senses things spiritually rather than physically, and it has desires that are healthy and good. Does that sound like a warfare about to happen inside of you? Yeah, uh-huh. And how many of you have experienced that warfare? That's what we've been talking about, that lack of peace. What's the go-between? The go-between is what the, the scripture writers call the human soul. And the soul is made up of mind, will, and emotions. Your thinker, your decider, and your feelers. Mind, will, and emotions, okay? Your thinker, your feeler, and your decider. Sometimes your soul is most influenced by the flesh. You know what it does then? Whatever the flesh desires, and at other times, your soul connected really well with your spirit and, there, and thereby with the spirit of God, it desires what, what God desires. And do you know what you do then? You obey and you do things that are pleasing to him. So the, the question today is how can I go from being a man, a woman, a teen or a child who spends most of their time in disobedience or losing the struggle to becoming a person who is more in tune with the spirit than with the flesh so that I walk the path of obedience and thereby find my way eventually to the place of peace. That's what Paul is talking to us about here. He says, first, remind yourself of the truth that you belong to God and your your failures are not going to undo that. But then secondly, he said to us, cut off the thoughts that kind of couple with flesh. You know why most people end up falling into sin? It's into the, the kind of sin that, that, that brings horrible destruction and shame in our lives. You know why that happens? Because we sit around and think about it until we do it. There's something about dallying with temptation. The longer that we, that we toy with it, the greater the likelihood that we are going to fall into the sin that we're being tempted by. Um, I always put it this way because, you know, I've always been built kind of slim like this. I don't have very big muscles, um, and I never was really much of a fighter. And so getting in fights at school was not a good idea. However, I've always been relatively quick. And so I arrived at this, uh, this, this main fighting strategy when I was about this big, and that was run for your life. Because I'll tell you this, I've never been beat up by somebody who couldn't catch me, right? So turn and burn, baby, bam, I'm out of there whenever I see something that could really put ugly hurt knots on my head and destroy me. The same is true spiritually, if, uh, if you can see something that has massive potential for damage to you, for hurt to your family, for shame to, the, to the, the reputation of Christ, sticking around and examining it for another moment is not going to help you overcome it. Staring it down for hours, days, years on end is not likely to make you a victor over temptation. Fleeing is the way to do it. So in this passage, Paul talked to us about that. He said, you know, the mind that is fixed on the flesh, the the corrupt desires, that mind doesn't have peace. Why? I, I thought there was a difference between temptation and sin, Cliff. Of course there is. When you're tempted, you haven't sinned. When you've sinned, you took the temptation and went all the way with it, right? But the truth is that temptation disrupts peace almost, almost, not quite, but almost to the same extent that sin does. Do you know why? God made you that way so that before you got to the place that you did something that was sinful and destructive, something in your heart would go, get me out of here! Red line, red line, red line, impending doom about to take place, catastrophe coming, boiler blowing up, 
Before it ever happens, he wants your, whole, your spirit to be so alarmed, your peace so disrupted, that you will turn around and walk away from it. One of the best things God ever did for you was give you an acutely functioning conscience so that when you sense something is wrong, you can interpret that as destructive and instructive. If I do this, it will destroy me. But if I learn the lesson that the meter is giving me, the worry, the anxiety, the fear, I can turn and walk away. Step number one, tell yourself the truth. He saved you and he meant it for good. He's going to hang on to you while you struggle to hang on to him. Step number two, cut off those tempting thoughts before they become full-blown sin in your life. Um, Deal with it before it's too late. You know why those things uh, cause you such peace? It's because, or such um, such worry, such why they disrupt peace is because they don't belong in your life. I would even go so far, though the scripture uses the language of sin. I would go so far as to say, I would I would encourage you to quit thinking simply in terms of what's sinful and what isn't. Instead, start thinking about what fits with a resurrected Christ. And what doesn't? What fits with the presence of the resurrected Christ in your life and what doesn't? For some reason, I have found those things to be, uh, that, that kind of language to be more helpful to me as I'm trying to uh, learn to flee temptation. Last step is this. First steps was quit worrying about your salvation and tell yourself the truth. Second one is cut off those sinful thoughts at the moment of their recognition before temptation turns into sin. And the third one is this. Let the Holy Spirit control your mind. Now, that, I, I could just leave that there, but there's been the real battle for me all along. That's been the real battle for me all along. When I have said no to temptation, I've still had this problem of what to do instead. And... Realizing that the, 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 the neutral line between those two, it isn't very broad and nobody lives there for very long. The question really is, how do I get to the place? Because he said in, in Romans 8 that, that the, the mind that is controlled by the spirit is life and peace. So there's the path, right? That's where it's taking us. The, the question is, how do I get to the place where my mind can be controlled by the spirit? Know this, if by control you mean like uh, remote control and you have no say whatsoever and the Holy Spirit's just going to take over and make you do what, well, that's not going to work because that's not the way, God just doesn't do that. He never turns us into mindless robots. There's no glory for God and there's no good for us and the people around us in becoming mindless followers who are controlled in that sense. Instead, what he's talking about is this kind of influence that is strong enough that your spirit becomes strong and your spirit gains mastery over your flesh. So, and remember, spirit's the part that connects with God and wants the holy things. Flesh is the part that interfaces with this fallen world around us and wants the destructive and sinful things. The, what, what God desires for us is this state of being where our spirits grow so strong that they take mastery over the flesh. And he refers to that as the mind that is controlled by the Spirit. If you would like to have your mind heavily influenced, effectively shaped by God's Holy Spirit to the place that you become pretty consistently obedient to God, and the result that you have a peace that is rarely interrupted. Here's what I suggest. Step number one, in, in it, I guess there's sub-steps, however, note-takers, you'll get this, right? Um, the first is this. Why don't you invite his Holy Spirit to do that? Have you ever invited God's Holy Spirit to take the place of authority and control in your mind? 
Uh, listen, I wish, I wish God was a bit more bully-like. I wish he would just say, all right, Cliff, you nodded my direction once, so I'm coming in there, and I'm cleaning things up, and I'm taking over, and I'm going to make it all right all at once. I wish he would do it, but he doesn't. Why? Because he has this incredible respect for personhood. He's a person, and he respects personhood in us. And because of that, he then comes along and works in our lives as we get ready and allow him to. And it means that he's never going to barge into the place of control in your mind. He will go there only when he is invited sincerely. So the first step to having your your mind controlled by the Spirit is to invite his Holy Spirit to come and to begin to, to shape the way that you think and shape the way that you value and therefore shape the way that you decide whenever you're struggling. Step number two is this. Why don't you just let out a big, deep breath and exhale? I know it's not very spiritual, but listen, if you're living your life like all the time over the the worry and the pressure and the stress, you're not going to be able to sense when God's spirit is in the room. But he's he's built in this kind of of built-in bleed-off valve physically that works for us spiritually. The, the, the Christian um, desert fathers had a, um, a, a well-documented um, history of teaching people to breathe so they could experience God. Step number three, don't go to scene on that. Step number three, if, uh, if you're in a, a spot where you can quickly grab a copy of the scriptures, come back here to Romans 8, 1 through 11. It begins with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should bleed off a little bit of the pressure. You go on down through there, and it's going to talk to you about the, the steps to peace. Read Romans 8, 1 through 11 um, if you can. Listen, somebody, uh, somebody who's really into phones, here's what I want to ask you to do. Make us a little um, homepage uh, lock screen thing for our phones this week that says the life control, the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Somebody make that and send it to the church and we'll, uh, we'll get it to, uh, available to you through the website, okay? Who's going to do that? I can't tell if you don't raise your hand. Katie, good. All right, thank you. Good. Read Romans 8, 1 through 11. Remind yourself of that. Put it, um, put it in places where, you, where your eyes can fall on it and your heart can, uh, can begin to absorb it. And then there's just this business. I said it's work, and here's the work. The work is when you realize that you are thinking a, a, a sinful thought, you're going to have, it, it, it never works to just stop thinking something. Stop thinking about a red bicycle. Stop thinking about a red bicycle. Stop thinking about a red bicycle. You can't see anything but red bicycles when I'm saying that, right? So, so there's this thing that has to happen in our minds where we quit pursuing sin with our minds, and we begin to reflect on the truth and the path of obedience. I I used to uh, ride with this this mountain biking group when I lived in in Montana. These guys were hardcore mountain bikers, and I learned an awful lot from them. And I learned why I was wrecking so much. I wrecked a lot. And when you wreck coming downhill on an actual mountain... It's kind of rough. A number of my aches and pains that still exist to this day come from, from bicycle wrecks. And I was riding with this guy who's a, a, who was a competitive racer, and he said, um, I know what your problem is. You're always looking at the things that you're trying to miss. He said, okay, well, he stopped me on the trail. He said, you see that big that, that rock right in the middle of the, of the track down there? Yep. He said, you are prone to top this hill and you see that rock and you're trying to avoid it and so you're looking right at it and everything in you, even while you're pushing away, it kind of tilts the handlebars back toward the rock and you either hit it or brush it or nearly miss it and you're so um, out of balance by trying to uh, around it that you're set up for a wreck afterwards. So the problem is you're looking at the things that you don't want to drive on. He says, instead of looking at the rock, look at the path where you want to go. And everything in you is built to follow. And listen, I learned a little bit about mountain biking that day. I learned an awful lot about living for Christ. 
Instead of fixing my eyes on my sin, instead of fixing my eyes on my failure, instead of coming back to that place again and again and again of the, the, the loser lie that I repeat in my head of how I always screw this up and I always, and I shouldn't even try again because I shouldn't make any more promises. I, it's, all of that is dooming me to failure because I keep looking at the place that I don't want to go. The path to peace is obedience to God. And if you begin to fix your mind on obedience, everything in you is built to follow where your eye is looking. How many recognize that the word of God says, fix your eyes on Jesus? Have you heard that? Yeah, it it shows up, that idea shows up way more than once in scripture. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul, that guy who said, I waffle back and forth between what I ought to do and what I shouldn't do and what I want to do and what I hate to do, and I'm a wretched man. He also said, this is King James language because it's how I learned it when I was a little boy. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hidden with Christ and God. What, what, what did he say there in between all the these, thous, and eths? Set your affections, set your mind, set your attention, set your focus on things above, on obedience. Path to peace. Listen, I can't fix all your relationship stuff. I don't know what's happening at work, and um, I, can't, I can't intervene in those situations. Probably can't help you much financially either. But I do know that the internal lack of peace that comes from us struggling and failing against temptation, I know there's a path to peace for the people of God. And the Holy Spirit, listen, the, the last verse that we read said that the same Spirit that brought back from the dead Jesus Christ now makes your mortal bodies alive. The same Spirit that brought back from the dead Jesus Christ now makes your mortal bodies alive. Sounds like, sounds like obedience is possible for the people of God, doesn't it? Therein lies the pathway of peace. We're serving communion uh, this morning this way. We're going to ask you to, to come forward. Steve's going to serve over here. I'm going to serve over here. And um, the reason that I'm serving communion at the end of the service today instead of, oh, you know, like at the end of the song part of the service is this. I believe that the people of God will never experience peace unless they seek it. Seeking peace is going to require putting aside some sin and setting our affections and our eyes on obedience to God that leads to peace. Whenever we, um, whenever we serve this meal, it's a reminder that Christ died to make it possible for us to be forgiven. Also, that he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you eat and drink the elements that represent his body and blood, it's not only a reminder that you've been forgiven. It's a reminder of the new life that is possible for you, a life that is characterized as peace. If today you want God to minister peace to you, then why don't you just come and receive the elements and receive his peace. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, as we bow in your presence right now, there's some of us that uh, are not experiencing your peace. There's some of us that when, when I was talking about a struggle against sin, there was a particular sin that just came to mind and began to, to dominate their view and they began to feel worry and they began to feel guilt and they began to feel shame and they began to talk to you about that and Maybe they didn't hear much else of what I said today. But Lord, in this cup and in this cracker are the reminders of forgiveness, but also of new life. And whatever else it is that you minister to your people today, 
Forgiveness would be great. But would you minister your peace? Would you reaffirm to each person who receives Holy Communion today that they are yours, that they are saved and therefore safe? And would you draw them the direction of obedience by giving them an eye for it and faith that your spirit will enable them to do it? I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Here's the way we're going to do this today. Got a couple of uh, gals who are uh, going to serve those who can't come forward. Also, those who, um, who need gluten-free elements, let us know and you'll be served those. Everybody else, I invite you to, to come forward. And after you receive communion today, if you'd like to stay and pray, you can do that. But otherwise, you'll be dismissed. Why don't you come?